Hey man, it's good to see you this morning. It's good to be with you. And my name is Kurt Parker. We're going to be in our time in the Word of God now. So you can turn in your copy of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I prayed for you this week. My prayer for you this week is that you were faithfully every day in the Word. And let me encourage you again to that commitment if you haven't been. If you haven't been, you're starving this morning spiritually, and that's not where the Lord wants you. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we see faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We know that our relationship is to God is initiated through His Word. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying for His followers. He says, sanctify them in the truth, what? Your Word is truth. So our relationship to God is matured through His Word. Uh, the true spiritual growth, the true spiritual good health is an extended, consistent process fed by the proper nourishment of the Word of God. Just like physical health is, is fed by proper nourishment, spiritual health is fed by proper nourishment. We are to take in the truths of Scripture, apply them to our lives, and then exercise them, and we do that consistently over a protracted period of time. As the church was established, the pattern for the believers' uh, lives were established. We see that from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. So, time in the Word privately, time in the Word corporately is essential for proper worship. I think we can see that. And right here in our study from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we see all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, it's not possible to be consistently godly, equipped for what life will bring apart from being in the Word daily. It's not possible. It's not even reasonable to assume as a believer, that you can be godly and also not be in the Word. It just, they just do not go together. And so my encouragement to you always is to be in the Word. And let me encourage you again as we approach the beginning of the new year uh, to make it your aim to embrace the spiritual disciplines because that's what they are, a faithfulness, worship, services, service in the church, renewed earnestness, particularly as our topic right now, to be committed to the Word of God each day, by establishing or perhaps reestablishing good habits for taking the Word of God in. If you have questions about how to do that or what you should do, I'd love to help you with that. It'd be my joy. You can contact me and, and we can get together and, and uh, look at how that's, what that's supposed to look like. Your relationship to God is initiated. It is matured through the Word. It is corporately essential for proper worship. And it is important and impossible to be godly without it. So let me encourage you to be that way. Now, last week, we're going to get into our, our, uh, our text today, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Last week, we jumped into a new section, God's Guidelines for Leadership. And it is, we began an introduction to that section. We're going to continue that introduction today, a little more of that. It's a very important and complex subject that we're studying it covers a very wide swath of the New Testament, and it is, I mark this, this is assumed knowledge for a foundation uh, to our passage. As, as Paul teaches the church, uh, teaches Timothy, who teaches the church in Ephesus, this is assumed knowledge. This is something you already should know. And so we're going to do that today because the church doesn't know it as well as it did perhaps in the first century. And I'm going to give you a heads up. 
We'll be a little shorter today, but don't get used to that, uh, because the ministry that we have going on down uh, in Rustburg today, we're going to be together with a, a good chunk of the church ministering at, at the Rustburg Christmas Parade. We're going to be handing out hot chocolate, and we're going to be handing out uh, tracts and, and New Testaments to probably between eight and 900 people, which is what is normal for us. And so we're looking forward to that. But we'll be a little shorter today, and I was shorter this morning with the first service, so it's going to be about the same for you. Turn to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, if you would, and we'll read together in, uh, in our copy of God's Word. I'll give you some verse cues to keep you together. Verse 1 says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, verse 2, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one, verse 4, who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's stop right there. Now, we noted last time that the world has plenty to say about what leaders need to do to be successful. And you can look at thousands of books, and a lot of that has spilled over into the church. But if we understand anything at all about the men Jesus chose to follow him, and to establish the church, and if we will know just by those observations that we can't talk about church leadership from the viewpoint of human potential or ability, or make a case for someone to lead the church just by analyzing the natural skills they may manifest and how we can polish them. And the Lord has made it clear that we're not to do that. In fact, the passage that we just read makes that very clear. He's given us spiritual qualifications in order to make those decisions. We also noted in our introduction that Paul has carried along to give the church these instructions. First of all, because there were people in leadership in Ephesus who were teaching lies, false doctrine, false religious systems, and living ungodly lives. We noted, secondly, he's bringing this because the letter takes in church order and conduct. In fact, in chapter 3, it says that's the reason for the writing, that people will know how to conduct themselves in the household of faith, which is the pillar and support of the truth. And then thirdly, not only because of an objective standard, but because there's a deeper purpose, namely world evangelization and mission, as stated at the beginning of chapter 2, where uh, Paul describes God as our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. So the requirements for leaders in the same way as those who pray and the lifestyle requirements for women and the complementary roles of men and women in the church, and the way we pray for men everywhere, for leaders and all in authority, all of those things put the church in a position where it can be effective and useful to the Lord. And I think you can see that. The overall umbrella is to fit into this plan the Lord has to make sure the church is where it needs to be. So here in 1 Timothy 3, we have this standard of, for leadership. Now let's read it again, if you would. Look at verse 1. And we'll read it together and then begin to do some more introductions, some comments on it. It's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. And verse 1 starts right at the beginning of the standard for leadership and explains how a man might begin the journey. 
And we reviewed some history of how God has called those who He wants to speak for Him. And just to sum that up, God spoke audibly in the Old Testament. We looked at a lot of examples of that. We looked at Jesus in the New Testament time where He personally went and called those He would use to establish the church. And then we saw that the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the calling now. It's always been a call, so it shouldn't surprise us that it still is. And then we defined that and we're able to kind of show why this passage gives us that understanding. And Paul's first comments help us understand how men can know if they're called into the ministry now in the church age. And we saw it's connected to two words for desire. First of all, he says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. And the first thing that we noticed is this is the office held by a man. And that was our first principle for those who lead the church. And just as we noted, there are no New Testament examples of anything else. No New Testament examples of women leading the church, of women in eldership, of bishopship, shepherding, any of those things. And that harmonizes very well with the commands from chapter 2, verses 8 and 11. And it harmonizes very well with 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. So we've seen that very clearly. And, and then this word, aspires, is that first Greek verb, uh, oregomi. It's uh, part of the Holy Spirit's work. It's a very strong personal desire to reach for the office. We saw last time that it works its way out on the outside, desiring to submit to the qualifications and bring the life into compliance. And, and the desire that it, it comes into his mind then is unbidden, and that's always the issue. People come and say, well, I now have this desire to be an elder, and I really desire to do the things it says here, and so we can see that that's going to be the case. The Holy Spirit brings that into his mind. The second part of the verse identifies the next part of the Holy Spirit's work. It's a fine work it says he desires to do. Epithemeo, compound verb, epi is on the side of, and thomos is fierceness or passion. So the idea is it's a passionate compulsion to be in the eldership. It eclipses everything else. In other words, whatever it was the man was doing, it's overshadowed by this one consuming desire. And once these two desires come together and begin to interact, then it's just one choice. The first word is something that he does outwardly. The second word is something that he feels inwardly. And that was principle number two. There is a a definite call to the background of a qualified man. And so if you are interviewing people and you're talking about them about ministry, it's not going to be, well, my you know, uh, academic advisor told me this would be good for, for my, my personality or, or somebody said that this would be good for me or I thought this would be good. I was thinking about something else, but this would be good, just as good. It's not that. There's always going to be these two desires that are interacting and every guy who's in the ministry and church ministry has this who is there and qualified. So it, it, there's a definite call in the background And what you have then is the Holy Spirit working in the heart of the man who desires to lead the church to pursue it on the outside because he's driven on the inside. He's compelled. So when men are in the church asking, you know, how do I know if I'm called to this office? The answer starts with, what are you compelled to do? What is it that the Lord has compelled you to do? Those two desires have one focus, to oversee the church. And that's the middle part of the verse. If any man aspires to the office, it says, of overseer. Episcopate, and we're going to look at a number of these, these words that deal with the names of those who serve the church in a moment. But this word is, for, is a word for visiting in, in order to examine. It's where we get our word for bishop. 
So, you know, when you see the big raiment and the pointy hat and all the jewelry and everything, and they say, well, he's the bishop or whatever, realize that's a later uh, assimilation of the word bishop. Bishop is used interchangeably with pastor, with elder, with overseer, uh, with shepherd to just talk about those who serve the church, not somebody who serves the church over other people, okay? So don't think bishop in that way, all right? That's always comes to my mind, you know, especially... uh, a uh, number of movies I've watched. But anyway, visiting in order to examine. It's the word for bishop. Now, the office includes then this labor of oversight. It has this idea of investigation, of inspection, of direction, and we're going to see more about that in a moment. But and next, we just briefly mentioned this last time, but First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. It says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And number, that's, that's, uh, that's our next um, principle, number four as it relates to the qualified men for leadership. The desire to lead the church is a wonderful thing to desire to do. And the word is the word used in the description, a beautiful view. Like, for instance, we have a town of Virginia, Buena Vista. Uh, Buna is the word for beautiful. That's the word we're using. So the word the Lord picked for the idea of describing this job, it's a beautiful job. It's noble. And what's interesting about this is this is, this is God's perspective of the job. It's a noble work. You speak for him through the preaching of his word. You have his heart for the church. You're willing to go when he says, who can I send, as we looked at last time. So it's a demanding occupation. It's a wonderful thing, but it is a work, a demanding lifelong task. We see Paul talk about that to Timothy, about this work, and we'll get here in a few months. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 2, he talks about the work, and he says to Timothy, preach the word, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Then on down to verse 5, he says, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul's not saying, you know, do it today and tomorrow and, you know, see how you feel after that and maybe it's not a good fit. He's, he's, uh, He's saying, do that lifelong work of preaching the word and be ready to do it when you feel like it. That's what it means when it's in season, when you feel like it, when it seems to be well received and out of season, when it isn't well received or when you don't feel like it, you still do it. So be ready to do it either way and stay in the understanding of what you're to do and do it. Do the lifelong work that will most definitely include hardship. Do the lifelong work of an evangelist. And, and that's an interesting way to express that, do the work of an evangelist. We, we have a number of guys who, who are serving the pulpit from time to time. And two of them are evangelists. They have the gift of evangelism. And so you can tell that often because when they come up and they teach, it's always associated around the message of the gospel. And that's great. There's some of us who don't have that spiritual gifting, but all of us have that job to do, do we not? We all have the Great Commission, and we're supposed to submit to it to go and and spread the gospel. But some of us in the ministry who are leading the church don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, so we do the what? We do the work of an evangelist, and that's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Do the work of an evangelist. Part of your ministry is going to be discharging the gospel, and so make sure that you do it. Now, he, we see this almost the same type of language as Paul talks to Titus in Titus 2, verse 11, and we'll get here uh, in a while. Again, Paul is telling about the work. He tells Titus this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So the grace of God comes, salvation comes, and it has some instructions that go along with it. It's not my own personal Jesus to do whatever I want. 
okay? There's, there's a denying of ungodliness and worldly desire and living sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Verse 15, mark this. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. So here's his instructions to Timothy. And he says, it's going to be tough, or to Titus rather. It's going to be tough, Titus. You're going to have to teach people to deny ungodliness. You're going to have to teach them to turn away from worldly desires. Why? Because, because the grace of God has appeared and salvation will teach you that. And as an elder in the church in Crete, you're going to have to do that too. You're going to have to show them how to live sensibly and righteously and godly in an age of materialism and immorality and self-centeredness and moral decay. You're going to have to teach them to set their hope not on the world which is passing away, but on the reality of Christ's return. Isn't that marvelous? You have to teach and make sure your people understand that in the middle of all their supplying for the needs of their family and the working hard that they're doing, they have to seek Him and His kingdom first. And that's what you live for. You have to supply for your needs, but the long goal of your life is to glorify God and you look forward to His return by how you live, see? And you have to guide the church, he says to Titus, and make sure she's a pure bride. And how do you know that? Zealous for good deeds. She is a pure bride who desires to do righteousness. Paul's not saying, you know, Titus, just do it today and tomorrow. And if you don't feel like it, you know, you can kind of, you can just kind of drop out and, and don't worry about it. See how you feel after that. It's not that. Uh, Paul, Paul, he's saying, do that lifelong work of speaking, exhorting, and reproving with all authority. And don't let anybody blow you off. So in other words, if they're blowing you off, you have to chase them down and make sure that they don't. And that's interesting, isn't it? So that's a pretty hard job. And, and I would say to you, if you want to bring it right into your own family, if you have children and you're having a hard time doing this with your own children, which you need to be doing, you need to be teaching your children to deny ungodliness and worldly desire, and you do that with spanking, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, right? We're doing that with our, with our students, looking at the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of a great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's their hope. Uh, they're living their life, but their hope and their goal of their life is to glorify God and be ready for His coming, right? You're doing this with your kids. But let me tell you this. That's hard, isn't it? And the more children you have, the more diligent you have to be to do that every day. It's an everyday job, isn't it? You're addressing all these kinds of things, and all the kids have different uh, ways that they're going to go, and you're having to do this. Can I say, tell you this? If you find it hard for kids, try doing it with a church. If you're finding it difficult in your own family, then spend your life doing it with the church, with adults who are, have all kinds of baggage and all kinds of things that they want to hold on to and private lives going on. See, this, this is the issue. And Paul, Titus, and Paul says to Titus, don't let anybody ignore you. Don't let them disregard you. You're going to have to do this. And Paul, Paul led by example. He didn't say, you know, do what I say, but not what I do. He said, follow my example as I follow Christ. And as we saw last time, Paul was the flesh and blood example of what that looks like, spiritual sacrificial ministry. In fact, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, and we looked at this extensively as we went through Corinthians, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under a compulsion. I'm supposed to, right? I had that double desire. The Lord brought me into ministry. He called me out of ministry. And these are the desires that I have, and I have a compulsion. I have to do this. In fact, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Now I'm being disobedient. 
For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a crown that comes along with doing it faithfully. But if against my will, if I don't really want to do it, if it's really hard and the church is making it difficult on me, which we see was Paul's experience, I have a stewardship. It's appointed unto men who serve in this position, they be found what? Faithful, right? That's the word for stewardship. They're stewards entrusted to me. I have a stewardship given to me. This is what I'm supposed to do, see? What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel... I may offer the gospel without charge so, that not to make, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And you remember this. It's not that they weren't, he wasn't supposed to have remuneration for what he did. It's just the church had such a hard time with paying Paul. He just decided I won't take any money. I'll work as a tent maker and I'll just give the gospel without charge. Even though he said, remember, Peter, has, Peter takes his living from the gospel and all the other apostles do. I won't. For though I'm free from all men, I'm not obligated to do anything on behalf of anybody, what they might think I need to do. I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. That sounds like a tough job. And he told the church in Thessalonica in chapter 5 verse 12, we'll see this more in a minute. He said, it's a hard job, so appreciate those who, here it is, diligently labor among you. And we'll see more of that in a moment, but for elders, we, we, we are to read that you know, it is a demanding work that we're to do. The work of the ministry is challenging. It's a work that isn't ever done. You don't get to clock out, really. There's always going to be something that's in your thoughts. There's going to be some ministry to do, a need to meet. There's going to be some concern for the church, some concern about some certain person, a worry that you have that you have to pray about. You're not supposed to just walk away and just do the minimum. I mean, guys do that in the, in the pulpit. They just do the bare minimum. They come on and just preach the gospel, whatever. They give the, they give the ministry uh, through the Word of God, but then they're not really doing anything. You can't really contact them. They're not available. You know, but that's not what you're supposed to do. That's not diligently laboring. That certainly doesn't line up with what he told Titus. So, and I'm not saying that elders are to do everything in the church either. I think you understand that. They're not. They're administrators. They teach you the Word of God, so you're equipped for every good work, which God has foreordained for you to do. And I don't want you to think that I'm complaining. I'm not on, my, on behalf of myself or any other pastor. Uh, quite the contrary. I, it is an honor and a joy to be able to do the work of the ministry on Jesus' behalf. That's how I really feel about it. And, and just as a footnote, we pray something like that pretty often with the band. We, we, before we begin early in the morning, um, we just want to remember what an honor it is to serve you and lead you to the throne. That's an honor to be able to be part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church body. That we get to, as you come in from the world and you fought off all these kinds of things, you're struggling with temptation, all that, you can come in and you can worship and you can, you can be introspective and you can ask for forgiveness and you can get in fellowship. That's a joy to be able to do those kinds of things, see. And you don't want to forget that in any ministry that you do, it's a joy to be, to be Jesus' hands and feet and voice. That's really the, the underlying satisfaction, regardless of the difficulty you may have. And I just say this because ministry is work. Paul said it was. It's certainly uh, experiential. We understand that. It, but it's a noble, praiseworthy, honorable work. But it never stops. And so if you feel this twofold desire to aspire to the office of overseer, you shouldn't skip over the work part. Now, you're talking about a lifelong occupation, and Paul knew that, and he suffered very greatly in that work, and we've looked at all of that. But that's the kind of men that the church needs. 
And I would say, too, there are lots of them doing it. But I bet very few are famous. We don't need more superstar pastors. We don't need more celebrities. What we need more of is guys that are willing to dig in and do the work and not worry about whether or not anybody notices. And they don't go on book tours and they're not endorsing anything. And Okay, so I think you understand what I'm saying. But when you think about it that way, when you think about the difficulty, when you think about all the disrespect with everything they saw in Paul and later Timothy and Titus to have to deal with, this encouragement of the reality that this is a great work, this is a good, beautiful work that's from the Lord's perspective, helps dispel some of the fear and the trepidation that may encroach into the spirit-given desires to oversee the church. I had that same experience myself. I, coming out of the private sector and into the ministry, I didn't have any, that wasn't where I was headed, but now I am. And I saw my own pastors in my church dealing with difficult things. And that brought a little bit of fear into my own heart. I'm like, I want to do this, but I really don't want to do that. See, So then you see that the Lord says, this is a beautiful work. And so that helps to kind of, I think, offset the, the uh, trepidation and fear you may have as you come into it. So Paul ends up this Remarkable description of how a man is to know that he's called by God to do the work by affirming the leadership as a noble aspiration. The apostle hopes, no doubt, and every pastor who teaches hopes that there will be men who will aspire to leadership. We pray that the Lord will bring that His Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of men and draw them out of whatever vocation they perhaps will be in now into church leadership. In a literal sense, the oversight is a beautiful task and we want men to do it. Now, Let's look at some of these words, and we're going to get some background here. Again, this is the introductory part of this passage because it is what was well known in the first century, not very well known now. And our word in 1 Timothy 3.1 is, our first word is overseer. We saw that already, episcope. It is the word for visiting, for oversight. It's translated bishop. Overseer, as we see here, refers to his leadership responsibility. And it's essential in the life of the church, we saw this in our introduction, to be led by a plurality of godly elders. And I mentioned that we would be taking a sampling, so we're going to do that right now. Words used to describe these men as part of our introduction. So I want to do that. Now, 1 Timothy 1, uh, 3, 1, overseer. And so that certainly is administration. It's oversight. Lead people, instruct them, deal with difficulty, coordinate, supervise, make decisions. It's all tied up in that word, just obviously, overseer. Some of the range of the responsibility that falls to every pastor and elder. Because the word overseer is used, so is pastor, so is an elder, and elder is one that we see often, so we'll look at that right now. And so, um, elder is the word presbyteros, simply speaks of spiritual maturity. It, um, it can mean an older person, and, and in Scripture it does mean that. Uh, often, but as it relates to the pastorate, it doesn't have to be an older person necessarily, but it certainly has to be someone who is mature in, this, in the faith, someone who's mature spiritually. And you remember, I've told you this many times before, spiritual maturity is not necessarily connected to gray hair or chronological age. It can be, but it isn't necessarily. You can be old and carnal. You can be holding ungodly and not know what the Word of God says. That's certainly possible. And remember, 
spiritual maturity is not connected to how long you've been in church. It's not connected to whether or not you served on a board or whether or not you taught a Sunday school class or some great seminar you went to sometime in the past. Spiritual maturity is directly connected to what we said at the very beginning, taking in the truths of the Word of God, understanding what they look like and say, and then putting them to work in your life over a long period of time. That's spirituality. That's godliness. Okay, you can conform your life into however you want in legalism. You can make people think you're godly. But the ultimate test is, why are you doing what you're doing? When it comes right down to it, it's going to be not so people think you're a Christian, but because you love the Lord and you want to submit to Him. So there's a lot of dynamic there, and I think you can see that. But there's spiritual maturity and connected to the word elder. And then this next word we see often is shepherd, poimaino. It, it's doing what is needed to take care of the flock. And so that connection to, to agrarian society is what he's after. And that translates pastor. That's where we get our word pastor. Uh, one who feeds. He feeds and makes decisions. He moves the flock. He treats their injuries. He watches out for them. It's translated by the word guardian sometimes. We saw that word last time in First Peter. So we have overseer. We have elder. We have shepherd. All those wor- words refer to the same person. They're all used of the same people in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And we looked at that just two weeks ago where Paul calls the elders from Ephesus and he talks about them. Tells them to shepherd the uh, the flock of God among them and all of that. They're all used of the same people in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and following. And we'll look at some of those passages in a moment. So maturity, responsibility for spiritual growth, oversight, supervision, management, administration. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 gives an overall description. I think it captures the idea. Verse 17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Proistime is the word rule. So those who serve as elders, pastors, overseers, proistime, which means they are to rule. That's the word to be ranked first, to be set, to set over. So we are referred to as under shepherds, underneath the great shepherd, but we have authority given to us by Christ to rule on his behalf using his word. So the church is not ruled by its people. It's ruled by those who stand first, that is, those who are its pastors. And anybody who's serving as an elder, as we looked at last time, uh, by the descriptions we see today, a steward, whether they're paid by Berean, whether they're part-time, whether they're employed on the outside, we recognize them as an elder, they're a pastor, they're an overseer, it's all the same. Any who are pastors are also elders, are also overseers, and that job is to rule and lead the church and to preach and teach. And that's what it says at the last part of verse 17. It says, elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially, mark it, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And just in case you're thinking about that and and thinking it's connected, how well it's connected to the office of elder or those who rule, James chapter 3 verse 1 gives a great balance to that. Let not many of you aspire to do that, actually, he says. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So here's James serving as a pastor in Jerusalem, and he says us, he says, don't many of you aspire to do that because you're going to have a stricter judgment, a very close eye from the Lord on you. Very critical evaluation. And that's not a bad thing. If you aspire to it and you're going to do the job, it's a reminder that you don't get to freelance with the Word of God. You have to take what the Word of God says and deliver it as faithfully as you can over the long term. That's what the Lord's looking for. Not a huckster, not a salesman, not making it and manipulating it to do whatever you want, which we see a lot in the churches today. 
That's not it. That's, you're in difficult straits now if that's what you're doing. So all these things about ruling and about leading and about oversight, that's the official capacity. So whatever it is they're doing, they're also preaching and teaching in that official capacity. In fact, we're going to see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that he has to be apt to teach. One of the qualifications is that he can communicate the Word of God. So it can't mean anything but that. And and that's the example we have in dozens of places in the New Testament. Mark it, beloved. Wherever you have a church named in the New Testament, you always have elders, pastors, overseers leading and ruling that church in all capacities. You always have that. that. Even if it's you're backing into the name of the church, you have to realize that all of those churches were all set up exactly the same way. In James chapter 5, verse 14, there's a number of other things that go on inside the leadership and what leadership has to do. James chapter 5, verse 14 says this, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And we've done that here. And I've got to participate with that with such a joy. And, we've, and I've done that many times and had the joy of blessing and doing that in other churches. The entire chapter, in fact, of Acts chapter 15 describes elders as setting church policy. The whole chapter is the elders having discussion of what would be taught and what would be done. In 1 Timothy 4.14, it makes it clear the elders ordain other elders. They recognize the gifts and they document the calling. And that is how it should be. Because we're talking about other people who have gone through the same process and they understand it very clearly. And I talked about the flawed way that uh, pastors are called in modern churches today. Laying hands on the new elder pastor and bringing him in. Timothy was ordained by the laying on of hands of the elders, presbyter, a group of elders, a plurality that recognized what was going on. The plurality of elders oversees each other too. In in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Now, that's an interesting passage, but it, it talks about some of the responsibility of those who lead the church. Because you have to realize that with that responsibility to lead the church comes accountability. And so, and we'll get back to this, just like Matthew chapter 18 deals with discipline in the church, if a brother sins, remember that is a chapter and verse. That's not what you'd prefer to do or what you think he should do. That's a discipleship issue, but an actual sin issue. That's what we're talking about here with an elder. It's an actual chapter and verse sin issue, not a preference you have for how the church should be run, not what you think should be going on, not what you think that elders should do. Those are not sin issues. The issue has to do with what does the Word of God say about conduct and is the person out of line with that conduct? And so same exact idea. So if there's an elder in open sinfulness, just like in discipline in Matthew 18, if there's a church person in open, rebellious sinfulness that won't change, then there's discipline that has to be brought to bear. And that just makes sense. And so elders fear that discipline and rein their life in because of that healthy fear, just like Matthew 18, if you've been part of a discipline process in a church and someone who will not turn and continues to do these things that are against what the Word of God says, and we bring their name forward, and what does that make you do? It makes you think, I never want to be there, right? Because no believer comes to faith and thinks, eventually I'd like to aspire to the, the position of discipline. I'd like to receive discipline in the church. But what does actually happen? You get out of the Word of God. You stop reading the Word of God long term. Thoughts are permeating your mind. You're doing things that you shouldn't be doing. Nobody knows yet. But that, all, that, all that is a precursor to what? 
sinfulness. When I, I, when I tell you, you know, you see pastors who fail morally, that didn't happen that day. I mean, the physical act did, but when did it start? It started a long time before that because you just got out of fellowship and you just weren't reading the word and you, weren't, you had no accountability. See, that's the issue. And so people fear that and that's a good thing. I fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the Lord has the right to deal with our sin any way he wishes. So 1 Timothy 5.17 gives us a good cross-section, I think, of the understanding that Paul wants to make sure Timothy has, the church has, and, and it's very clear. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So to sum it up, elders are to rule the church, they're to lead it, they're to teach and preach, they're to pray for it, they're to care for the congregation, we're to love the congregation, they are to shepherd the congregation and guard them, they're to set policy, they're to ordain other elders, they are to lead by example in life and ministry, and we see that uh, in those qualifications. And that's a really big responsibility. And so when you look at your own life and, and you ask if you're called, you remember that this is an important calling and it's a noble work and, and there are a number of things that are required and it's important that you not overlook them. And, and I'm going to look at a few more examples of these things because this may be news to you, some of the things I just got through saying, and, and it may be hard to hear. Maybe not. But as I've told you before, there are a number of reasons why messages are difficult to give. Messages just may be hard to understand. There may be a passage in Scripture that takes a long time to get on top of it. And, and my wife can tell you over the many, many years, sometimes on Thursdays, which is when I really finish everything up, uh, sometimes it's midnight or one o'clock before I come in, and she's like, man, that took a long time. I'm like, I just couldn't get on top of the understanding. And that's required. If I'm going to give it to you, I have to understand it, right? Because the easiest way to be not understandable is to have no idea what you're talking about. Right? You don't want to come up here and not know what you're talking about and then try to tell somebody else because they're like, that makes no sense to me whatsoever, right? Because it made no sense to him. So you've got to get on top of it, and that can make the message hard. And I think every, every preacher here has been there. It can also be awkward for the church to hear, okay? It can be awkward for the church to hear because maybe there's a sin issue going on in the church, maybe, and then you're coming through a passage that deals with disunity or is dealing with something, and then you have to say it, and you know there's going to be some fallout because you say it. And then it can be this one, which is awkward for me to say it to you because I serve as an elder and then I'm telling you what the office of elder is supposed to look like. So these all things can be difficult. It may be hard for you to hear, maybe not, but there's a few more examples and I want to do that as we get ready to close. Just describing the different aspects of work. Now, when you see the requirements for an elder, you see, with the exception of apt to teach and not a novice, pretty much a list of qualifications. What we're going to see now is those qualifications and names put into practice in the passages we're going to look at. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. We have two different aspects of function here, what's going on in the church with the elder, plus the attitudes that are to be brought to bear. So here's what he says. Shepherd the flock. So again, we have the idea of the shepherding understanding, of the guardianship. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight. So again, another function. The ruling of the church, the administrating of the church, not under compulsion, not because you feel like you have to do it. That is a requirement that you do it and be found faithful, but you don't want that to be your attitude. Oh man, here I go again. I got to go do this, right? That's not the attitude you're supposed to bring, but voluntarily you want to desire it according to the will of God. That's what God says you're supposed to do, how the attitude you're supposed to bring to bear without compulsion, voluntarily. That's the will of God. Shepherd them Give oversight. That's the will of God. And not for sordid gain, not because they pay you or because you want money, but with eagerness, because you desire to do the ministry that God has brought forth. And you're fortunate to be able to have this beautiful understanding and this opportunity to do this wonderful ministry that God looks at. 
Again, at the church of Philippi, Philippians 1.1, Paul talks to them. He says, Paul and Timothy, again, this is one of those common letter addresses, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Paul an apostle, Timothy an elder. They're both what? Bond servants. I love that. You remember the, the, what a bond servant is? You remember in the Old Testament? If you went into servitude with someone, because remember, slavery in the Old Testament is not the same as, as modern-day slavery. You went into servitude because you owed someone something, so you began to work the debt off. And so as you work the debt off, you realize you have a love relationship with that person. You love that family. You love serving them. And you get all done with paying your debt. And then you say to that person, I love it here, and I don't want to leave. This is my life, so I'm going to stay. Then you become what? That is a bond servant. You desire to continue to serve them. And then they would go over to a post and stick an all through your ear to mark you that way. All right? And so um, that's what would happen. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, mark it, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including, here it is, overseers and deacons. See, it's, it's everywhere, okay? Those who oversee the church and deacons who serve the church. Those two official offices, they're in Philippi. We see the same presence, but really different names addressing the same kinds of men in Acts 15. And I told you this whole chapter deals with policy. It deals with what's going to be taught, how it's going to be taught, what's going to happen. Jerusalem Council, verse 4, it's just a sampling of it. Here's what he says. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles, market, and who? And the elders, a big group of elders from all over the place coming and helping make this, uh, this policy. It reported all that God had done with them. Church of Thessalonica, Paul writes to them, speaking of those who lead the church and describes their jobs. He says, but we request of you, brethren, so he's talking to the church, that you appreciate those who, number one, diligently labor among you. Again, a hard job, working hard at it. So you recognize that they give a lot of the time and a lot of effort. They lay themselves out, pour themselves out. That's diligent labor, pouring themselves out. Number two, have charge over you. There's the idea of, of uh, being oversight, of ruling and then give you instruction. That's the function of teaching, the one who's instructing and helping you walk in holiness. Uh, separate but distinct functions, same kinds of men we saw before, working here and doing these kinds of things, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So he just tells the church, love them, all right? Don't be angry because they're doing their job. Don't be angry because they diligently labor among you, but they don't do as much as you would have them do. Don't be angry because they have charge over you. Don't be angry because they give you instruction. Love them, he says. And then, again, speaking of the same kinds of men in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and verse 17, he says, remember those who led you. That's the, uh, that's the function of overseer who spoke the word of God to you. There's the teacher and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. So watch what they're doing and then imitate what they do. Uh, obey your leaders, verse 17, and submit to them, those who rule. Obey and submit, for they keep watch over your souls. That's the idea of the shepherding. They're watching, they're guarding, as those who will give an account. They're doing it because they're going to have to come before the great shepherd, and he'll have some questions about how they did it. And that's in my mind all the time, beloved. Every time I come to the ministry to do ministry among you, I realize I'm serving under the great shepherd and I have to give an account. And I'm also going to give account for you because the next sentence has that to say. Because I think it's, it's um, I imagine perhaps people would say, I can't wait to get to Jesus and tell him how terrible a pastor Kurt was. Well, you're not going to get that chance, see, because I'm the one who has to give the report. 
See what verse, um, the next passage says? Let them do this with joy and not with grief. I want to give the report with joy, not grief. See? For this would be unprofitable for you. So it's an interesting passage. It takes in a number of the functions of those who lead and it gives instruction to the church. So again, you know, once the church is established, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up with this. We're out of time. Once the church is established through the ministry of the apostles, what you begin to see is this emphasis on elders, pastors, overseers who are in the primary position. And they oversee the church and they lead the church throughout the New Testament. And because that's a serious job, the Lord hasn't left that, uh, those qualifications up to chance or up to preference. And so it's not a human ability, as we saw last time. God has set the standard. And it's not going to be human ability that's going to make them effective. And I told the first service this, and this is very transparent to you. Before I, before I go up and preach, before I go talk to somebody, before I counsel somebody, I, I pray this prayer. Lord, help me to do this in the power of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, and manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Because there's nothing about Kurt Parker that's going to be effective if those things aren't true. I want to do it filled with the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, right? Because we all have gifts. Manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Because nothing's going to happen of any good thing, no, no eternal thing, beloved. As you do your class teaching, as you do your small groups, as you lead uh, your family, you're going to need to have this. If you want to have power, if you want to speak to people's hearts, if you want people to see transformation, this is what it's going to look like, okay? As you go today, if you're going to serve with us, pray that prayer. That you'll be winsome, that you'll come across uh, and people will desire what you have. The Lord will give you favor. It's not going to be your personality, your, your great sales ability. You're not going to bring somebody in and be able to talk to them about the Lord because you have so much going for you. It's going to be because the Holy Spirit's working through you. And I say all that to say that this is not a human ability, and, and these are exclusive of character and lifestyle and testimony and qualifications. Everything we're going to see in 1 Timothy 3 are those four things. It's character, lifestyle, testimony, qualifications. And I want to say this to you as we're going to close. It should be interesting to realize that all these requirements that we're going to look at next time, Lord willing, with the exception of apt to teach in verse 2 and not a novice in verse 6, mark it, apply to every believer. Did you catch that? Those requirements apply to every believer. There's just one standard for all believers. Those who attend and those who lead. It's godliness. And this describes it. And the difference is this. That you may be able to get by with not manifesting some of these things. But I can't. You may come to church and you're not manifesting a number of these things and you might be given to wine and you might be have all these other things going on in your life, beloved. Did you know that I can't have that? See, I have to be an example to the flock. So I have to aspire to those qualifications, but those apply to everyone with the exception of apt to teach and not a novice, okay? So get that uh, as you read ahead. If you want to understand the things that we're talking about here, understand this is describing godliness, which is what the Lord wants for those who speak for him. I think we can easily make that case. But this is what it's going to look like, and so I'm looking forward to going through this with you.
Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to uh, be in your word. We're so grateful that although you are separate from us, holy, and in your, on your throne in heaven, that you have bridged the gap, and we desire very much to, for your will to be done and for your kingdom to be established. It's the reason why we come, Father. Thank you for the many who've come today uh, in both services who desire to walk with you. I pray that uh, that desire, that uh, desiring godliness, desiring righteousness, that will be filled. And Father, we thank you too for an opportunity today, as Jacob did earlier and will do now, to pray for all men everywhere. We thank specifically for the bunch of people who are going to come today and line up Village Highway. I pray that you'll help us to be able to reach them. We pray for their hearts to be soft, for the, uh, the tracts that we hand out to be read, for you to speak in power through your word that they might come to faith. Uh, we pray for leaders and all uh, who are in authority, uh, Lord, that, especially over us now, that they might come uh, to a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that we might be able to live in tranquility and peace, and that our church will, will dwell in godliness, that we won't have habits that are, are make, it, make people wonder whether or not we're actually truly born again as they watch us, but instead, uh, as we align ourselves with your word, uh, that we'll then be blameless in front of those who watch. So Father, these are our desires, our desires to know how you want your church to be led, how you want your church to function, to know and see that these requirements are requirements for godliness across the board for those who attend and those who lead. Lord, I pray that um, you'll begin to conform us by the reading of your word. I don't pretend to know what's going on in the hearts of individuals any more than they can know what's going on in my own heart. But Lord, we thank you that your word is true and tested and that um, it, it produces what it's supposed to produce if we're willing to be the kind of people you wish us to be. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. Amen.